Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 318 of Forgotten Classics, where we are still in the heart of the Orient as we go around the world in 72 days with intrepid woman reporter Nellie Bly. I have not really been listening to any new podcasts, so I don't have a podcast highlight this week. However, I have to tell you, I downloaded the audiobook of The Help and found it mesmerizing to the point where I wasn't listening to anything else. Probably most people have heard this story because the book was very popular and then there was a movie which was not as well done as the book, but it conveyed enough of the book. And it's basically set in 1960s Mississippi. It is told first person from the point of view of two of the help, which are the black maids who work for wealthy white families. And one young woman who is the daughter of a cotton farmer. She's white. She's just gotten out of college and wants to be a writer. What happens is she's looking for a project and has been encouraged by a New York publisher to try her hand at something that is unique. And as she goes to her friends' bridge parties and watches their household, she becomes intrigued by the maids that everybody has and how they feel about things. She gets a couple of the maids to help her, and they are some of the other people who we're hearing from firsthand. Through all this, of course, we see how their lives go. We see how different everything is. And the main thrust of the book is the collaboration between Skeeter, who's the white girl, and the colored, which is what they are called in the book, help. And how it changes them, how they influence each other, what working on this book does for them, and what happens as the aftermath of working on this book. It is really well done. It's easy to think of this theme as being one that we already know, but the story itself is compelling. You really love these women. And you start to worry about them and their lives. And it's just really a good book. I remember really liking it when I read it in print. And I was casting around for something to listen to. And I was just mesmerized by the voices that the audio narrators gave these women. Even though I love the print book, it's so much better hearing it. Also, just as a side note, Octavia Spencer, who plays Minnie in the movie wonderfully, also narrates the mini section. So it's fun to visualize her doing that. So that is my recommendation, my five-star lock. (laughs) Give it a try. Now let's get back to Around the World in 72 Days. I have to say, there were several things that really stuck with me from the last few chapters we listened to. One was the crazy infatuated guy on the boat who was saying, wouldn't it be great if I grabbed you in my arms and we plunged to the bottom of the sea? She's thinking, oh, there's nobody on deck. What am I going to do? What do I do to not provoke this guy? You don't think of coming across that sort of situation. You think of stalkers like that being a modern situation, but wow, that was crazy. 
I also loved the moment when the person's talking and says, so, yeah, do you think she's going to beat you around the world? She's like, well, she... Oh, there's, didn't you know there's another reporter, woman reporter, who's doing the same thing and said she's going to beat you? And she's like, whoa, what? How would that have ever occurred to her? Because she was so focused on what she was doing. And of course, it makes sense, especially in those days of really sensational news, that somebody would immediately launch something to get themselves part of that action. So I liked that, too. I was struck again in some of the descriptive parts of how powerful her writing is, how well it conveys the sense of place, especially in the part where they're being carried up the levels to a big dinner in Hong Kong, and she's describing the stillness, the atmosphere all around them, that they can only hear the slapping of people's feet, that sort of thing. I was really kind of mesmerized by it. And then I thought it was hilarious that there's so many bachelors out there, which I understand. They're only going to send men on work, these companies, especially at that time. And they're, they're just like, but I can't date the native women, or at least I can't marry them, certainly according to the mores of the time. And so she was saying, instead of saying, go west, young man, go east, girls, if you want to find a bachelor to marry. I thought that was hilarious. And then the fact that she said, well, I've seen Hong Kong. I really can't wait to see Canton. So she arranged for that. So we're going to go into China itself without the British influence. Although, you know, you assume she's going to be arranging it through Europeans. But it's going to be even deeper into the heart of what was a very exotic place. Even more exotic than now. And I think we think of China as being pretty exotic, and rightfully so. So this next section is going to be a long one. She's going to go to China and Ansi and then to Japan. Super good stuff. I can't wait, and I know you can't either, so let's dive in. Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 13 Christmas in Canton The O&O agent escorted me to the ship Powan, on which I was to travel to Canton. He gave me in charge of Captain Grogan, the Powan's commander, an American who has lived for years in China. A very bashful man he was, but a most kindly, pleasant one. I never saw a fatter man or a man so comically fattened. A wild inclination to laugh crept over me every time I caught a glimpse of his roly-poly body, his round red face embedded, as it were, in the fat of his shoulders and breast. The thoughts of how sensitive I am concerning remarks about my personal appearance in a measure subdued my impulse to laugh. I have always said to critics, who mercilessly write about the shape of my chin, or the cut of my nose, or the size of my mouth, and such personal attributes that can no more be changed than death can be escaped, criticize the style of my hat or my gown, I can change them, but spare my nose, it was born on me. Remembering this, and how nonsensical it is to blame or criticize people for what they are powerless to change, I pocketed my merriment, letting a kindly feeling of sympathy take its place. Soon after we left, night descended. I went on deck where everything was buried in darkness. Softly and steadily the boat swam on, the only sound, 
and the most refreshing and restful sound in the world was the lapping of the water. To sit on a quiet deck, to have a starlit sky the only light above or about, to hear the water kissing the prow of the ship is, to me, paradise. They can talk of the companionship of men, the splendor of the sun, the softness of moonlight, the beauty of music, but give me a willow chair on a quiet deck, the world with its worries and noise and prejudices lost in distance, the glare of the sun, the cold light of the moon blotted out by the dense blackness of night. Let me rest, rocked gently by the rolling sea, in a nest of velvety darkness, my only light the soft twinkling of the myriads of stars in the quiet sky above, my music the round of the kissing waters, cooling the brain and easing the pulse, my companionship dreaming my own dreams. Give me that, and I have happiness in its perfection. But away with dreams. This is a workaday world, and I am racing time around it. After dinner, when the boat anchored, waiting for the tide which was to carry us safely over the bar, I went below to see the Chinese passengers. They were gambling, smoking opium, sleeping, cooking, eating, reading, and talking, all huddled together on one deck, which was in one large room, not divided into cabins. They carry their own beds, a bit of matting, and their own food, little else than rice and tea. Before daybreak we anchored at Canton. The Chinamen went ashore the moment we landed, but the other passengers remained for breakfast. While we were having breakfast, the guide whom the captain had secured for us came on board and quietly supervised the luncheon we were to take with us. A very clever fellow was that guide, Ah Kum. The first thing he said to us was, A Merry Christmas! And as it had even slipped our minds, I know we all appreciated the polite thoughtfulness of our Chinese guide. Ah Kum told me later that he had been educated in an American mission located in Canton, but he assured me with great earnestness that English was all he learned. He would have none of the Christian religion. Akam's son was also educated in an American mission and, like his father, has put his learning to good account. Besides being paid as guide, Akam collects a percentage from merchants for all the goods bought by tourists. Of course, the tourists pay higher prices than they would otherwise, and Akam sees they visit no shops where he is not paid his little fee. Akam is more comely in features than most Mongolians, his nose being more shapely and his eyes less slit-like than those of most of his race. He had on his feet beaded black shoes with white soles. His navy blue trousers, or tights more properly speaking, were tied around the ankle and fitted very tight over most of the leg. Over this he wore a blue, stiffly starched, shirt-shaped garment which reached his heels, while over this he wore a short padded and quilted silk jacket, somewhat similar to a smoking jacket. His long, coal-black queue, finished with a tassel of black silk, touched his heels, and on the spot where his queue began rested a round black turban. Akam had chairs ready for us. His chair was a neat arrangement in black, black silk hangings, tassels, fringe, and black wood poles finished with brass knobs. Once in it, he closed it, and was hidden from the gaze of the public. Our plain willow chairs had ordinary covers, which, to my mind, rather interfered with sightseeing. We had three coolies to each chair. Those with us were barefooted, with tousled pigtail and navy blue shirts and trousers, 
much the worse for wear in both cleanliness and quality. Ah Kum's coolies wore white linen garments, gaily trimmed with broad bands of red cloth, looking very much like a circus clown's costume. Ah Kum led the way, our coolies following. For a time I was only conscious of a confused mass of black faces and long pigtails, though shortly I became accustomed to it, and was able to distinguish different objects along the crowded thoroughfare, could note the different stands and the curious looks of the people. We were carried along dark and dirty narrow ways, in and about fish stands, whence odors drifted, filling me with disgust, until we crossed a bridge which spanned a dark and sluggish stream. This little island, guarded at every entrance, is Shamin, or Sandy Face, the land set aside for the habitation of Europeans. An unchangeable law prohibits celestials from crossing into this sacred precinct because of the hatred they cherish for Europeans. Shamin is green and picturesque, with handsome houses of oriental design, and grand shade trees, and wide velvety green roads, broken only by a single path, made by the bare feet of the chair carriers. Here, for the first time since leaving New York, I saw the stars and stripes. It was floating over the gateway to the American consulate. It is a strange fact that the further one goes from home, the more loyal one becomes. I felt I was a long ways off from my own dear land. It was Christmas Day, and I had seen many different flags since I last gazed upon our own. The moment I saw it floating there in the soft, lazy breeze, I took off my cap and said, That is the most beautiful flag in the world, and I am ready to whip anyone who says it isn't. No one said a word. Everybody was afraid. I saw an Englishman in the party glance furtively towards the Union Jack, which was floating over the English consulate, but in a hesitating manner, as if he feared to let me see... Consul Seymour received our little party with a cheery welcome. He was anxious that we should partake of his hospitality, but we assured him our limited time only gave us a moment to pay our respects, and then we must be off again. Mr. Seymour was an editor before he went to China with his wife and only daughter to be a consul. Since then he has conceived a hobby for embroideries and carved ivories, which he is able to ride to the top of his bent in Canton. When tourists go there, he always knows some place where he can guide them to bargains. Mr. Seymour is a most pleasant, agreeable man, and a general favorite. It is to be hoped that he will long have residence in Shamin, where he reflects credit upon the American consulate. What a different picture Canton presents to Shamin! They say there are millions of people in Canton. The streets, many of which are roughly paved with stone, seem little over a yard in width. The shops, with their gaily colored and handsomely carved signs, are all open, as if the whole end facing the street had been blown out. In the rear of every shop is an altar, gay in color and often expensive in adornment. As we were carried along the roads, we could see not only the usually rich and enticing wares, but the sellers and buyers. Every shop has a bookkeeper's desk near the entrance. The bookkeepers all wear tortoise-shell-rimmed glasses of an enormous size, which lend them a look of tremendous wisdom. I was inclined to think the glasses were a mark of office, for I never saw a man employed in clerical work without them. I was warned not to be surprised if the Chinamen should stone me while I was in Canton. I was told that Chinese women usually spat in the faces of female tourists when the opportunity offered. However, I had no trouble. The Chinese are not pleasant-appearing people, 
They usually look as if life had given them nothing but trouble. But as we were carried along, the men in the stores would rush out to look at me. They did not take any interest in the men with me, but gazed at me as if I was something new. They showed no sign of animosity, but the few women I met looked as curiously at me, and less kindly. The thing that seemed to interest the people most about me were my gloves. Sometimes they would make bold enough to touch them, and they would always gaze upon them with looks of wonder. The streets are so narrow that I thought at first I was being carried through the aisles of some great market. It is impossible to see the sky, owing to the signs and other decorations, and the compactness of the buildings, and with the open shops, just like stands in a market, except they are not even cut off from the passing crowd by a counter. The delusion is a very natural one. When Ah Kum told me that I was not in a market house, but in the streets of the city of Canton, my astonishment knew no limit. Sometimes our little train would meet another train of chairs, and then we would stop for a moment, and there would be a great yelling and fussing until we had safely passed, the way being too narrow for both trains to move at once in safety. Coolie number two of my chair was a source of great discomfort to me all the day. He had a strap spanning the poles by which he upheld his share of the chair. This band, or strap, crossed his shoulders, touching the neck just where the prominent bone is. The skin was worn white and hard-looking from the rubbing of the band, but still it worried me, and I watched all the day expecting to see it blister. His long pigtail was twisted around his head, so I had an unobstructed view of the spot. He was not an easy traveler, this coolie, there being as much difference in the gait of carriers as there is in the gait of horses. Many times he shifted the strap, much to my misery, and then he would turn and, by motions, convey to me that I was sitting more to one side than to the other. As a result, I made such an effort to sit straight and not to move that when we alighted at the shops I would be cramped almost into a paralytic state. Before the day was over I had a sick headache, all from thinking too much about the comfort of the Chinamen. A disagreeable thing about the coolies is that they grunt like pigs when carrying one. I can't say whether the grunt has any special significance to them or not, but they will grunt one after the other along the train, and it is anything but pleasant. I was very anxious to see the execution ground, so we were carried there. We went in through a gate where a stand erected for gambling was surrounded by a crowd of filthy people. Some few idle ones left it to saunter lazily after us. The place is very unlike what one would naturally suppose it to be. At first sight it looked like a crooked back alley in a country town. There were several rows of half-dried pottery. A woman, who was molding in a shed at one side, stopped her work to gossip about us with another female who had been arranging the pottery in rows. The place is probably seventy-five feet long by twenty-five feet wide at the front, and narrowing down at the other end. I noticed the ground in one place was very red, and when I asked Ah Kum about it, he said indifferently, as he kicked the red-colored earth with his white-soled shoe, "'It's blood.' Eleven men were beheaded here yesterday. He added that it was an ordinary thing for ten to twenty criminals to be executed at one time. The average number per annum is something like four hundred. The guide also told us that in one year, 1855, over fifty thousand rebels were beheaded in this narrow alley. While he was talking, I noticed some roughly fashioned wooden crosses leaned up against the high stone wall, and, supposing they were used in some manner for religious purposes, before and during executions, I asked Ah Kum about them. 
A shiver waggled its way down my spinal cord when he answered, When women are condemned to death in China, they are bound to wooden crosses and cut to pieces. Men are beheaded with one stroke unless they are the worst kind of criminals, the guide added. Then they are given the death of a woman to make it the more discreditable. They tie them to the crosses and strangle or cut them to pieces. When they are cut to bits, it is done so deftly they are entirely dismembered and disemboweled before they are dead. Would you like to see some heads? I thought that Chinese guide could tell as large stories as any other guides, and who could equal a guide for highly colored and exaggerated tales? So I said coldly, Certainly, bring on your heads. I tipped the man as he told me, who, with the clay of the pottery on his hands, went to some barrels which stood near to the wooden crosses, put in his hand, and pulled out a head. Those barrels are filled with lime, and as the criminals are beheaded, their heads are thrown into the barrels, and when the barrels become full, they empty them out and get a fresh supply. If a man of wealth is condemned to death in China, he can, with little effort, buy a substitute. Chinamen are very indifferent about death. It seems to have no terror for them. I went to the jail and was surprised to see all the doors open. The doors were rather narrow, and when I got inside and saw the prisoners with thick, heavy boards fastened about their necks, I no longer felt surprised at the doors being unbarred. There was no need of locking them. I went to the court, a large, square, stone-paved building. In a small room off one side, I was presented to some judges who were lounging about smoking opium. In another room, I met others playing fantan. At the entrance, I found a large gambling establishment. They took me into a room to see the instruments of punishment. Split bamboo to whip with, thumb screws, pulleys on which people are hanged by their thumbs, and such pleasant things. While I was there, they brought in two men who had been caught stealing. The thieves were chained with their knees meeting their chins, and in that distressing position were carried in baskets suspended on a pole between two coolies. The judges explained to me that as these offenders had been caught in the very act of taking what belonged not to them, their hands would be spread upon flat stones, and with smaller stones every bone in their hands would be broken. Afterwards they would be sent to the hospital to be cured. Prisoners dying in jail are always beheaded before burial. An American who has lived many years near Canton told me there is a small bridge spanning a stream in the city where it is customary to hang criminals in a fine wire hammock, first removing all their clothing. A number of sharp knives are laid at the end of the bridge, and everyone crossing while the man is there is compelled to take a knife and give a slash to the wire-imprisoned wretch. As I saw none of this myself, I only give these stories— as they were given to me. They tell me of bamboo punishment. I cannot now recall the name they gave it. it. Is not as uncommon in China as one would naturally suppose from its extreme brutality. For some crimes, offenders are pinioned in standing position with their legs astride, fastened to stakes in the earth. This is done directly above a bamboo sprout. To realize this punishment in all its dreadfulness, it is necessary to give a little explanation of the bamboo. A bamboo sprout looks not unlike the delicious asparagus, but it is of a hardness and strength not equaled by iron. When it starts to come up, nothing can stop its progress. It is so hard that it will go through anything on its way up. Let that anything be asphalt or what it will, the bamboo goes through it as readily as though the obstruction didn't exist. The bamboo grows with marvelous rapidity straight up into the air for thirty days, and then it stops. When its growth is finished, it throws off a shell-like bark, its branches slowly unfolding and falling into place. 
They are covered with a soft, airy foliage finer than the leafage of a willow. From a distance a bamboo forest is a most beautiful thing, exquisitely soft and fine in appearance, but adamant is not harder in reality. As I have said, nothing can stop a bamboo sprout when it intends to come up. Nothing ever equal the rapidity of its growth, it being affirmed that it can really be seen growing. In the thirty days that it grows it may reach a height of seventy-five feet. Picture then a convict pinioned above a bamboo sprout, and in such a position that he cannot get away from it. It starts on its upward course, never caring for what is in its way. On it goes through the man who stands there dying, dying worse than by inches, conscious for a while. Then fever mercifully kills knowledge, and at last, after days of suffering, his head drops forward and he is dead. But that is not any worse than tying a man in the boiling sun to a stake, covering him with quicklime and giving him nothing but water to quench hunger and thirst. He holds out and out, for it means life, but at last he takes the water that is always within his reach. He drinks, he perspires, and the lime begins to eat. They also have a habit of suspending a criminal by his arms, twisting them back of him. As long as a man keeps his muscles tense, he can live, but the moment he relaxes and falls, it ruptures blood vessels, and his life floats out in a crimson stream. The unfortunate is always suspended in a public place, where magistrates watch so that no one may release him. Friends of the condemned flock around the man of authority, bargaining for the man's life. If they can pay the price extorted by him, the man is taken down and set free. If not, he merely hangs until the muscles give out and he drops to his death. They also have a way of burying the whole of criminals except their heads. The eyelids are fastened back so that they cannot close them, and so facing the sun they are left to die. Sticking bamboo splints under the fingernails and then setting fire to them is another happy way of punishing wrongdoers. I had no idea what I was to see when we mounted the filthy stone steps leading to the Temple of Horrors. I concluded it must be an exhibition of human monstrosities. The steps were filled with dirty Mongolians of all sizes, ages, shapes, and afflictions. When they heard our steps, those who could see and walk rushed up to us crying for alms, and those who were blind and powerless raised their voices the louder because they could not move. Inside a filthy stone court was crowded with a mass of humanity. There were lepers, peddlers, monstrosities, fortune-tellers, gamblers, quacks, dentists with strings of horrid teeth, and even pastry-cooks. It is said the Chinese worship here occasionally and consult idols. In little dirty cells were dirty figures, representing the punishment of the Buddhist's hell. They were being whipped, ground to death, boiled in oil, beheaded, put under red-hot bells, being sawed in twain, and undergoing similar agreeable things. Canton is noted for its many curious and interesting temples. There are over 800 temples in the city. The most interesting one I saw during my flying trip was the Temple of the Five Hundred Gods, while there the guide asked me if I was superstitious, and upon my answering in the affirmative, he said he would show me how to try my luck. Placing some joss sticks in a copper jar before the luck god, he took from the table two pieces of wood, worn smooth and dirty from frequent use, which placed together were not unlike a pear in shape. With this wood, he called it the luck pigeon, held with the flat sides together, he made circling motions over the smoldering joss sticks, once twice, 
thrice, and dropped the luck pigeon to the floor. He explained if one side of the luck pigeon turned up and the other turned down, it meant good luck, while if they both fell in the same position, it meant bad luck. When he dropped it, they both turned the one way, and he knew he would have bad luck. I took the luck pigeon then, and I was so superstitious that my arm trembled and my heart beat in little palpitating jumps as I made the motions over the burning jaw sticks. I dropped the wood to the floor, and one piece turned one way and one the other, and I was perfectly happy. I knew I was going to have good luck. I saw the examination hall, where there are accommodations for the simultaneous examination of 11,616 celestial students, all male. We went to the entrance gate through a dirty park-like space where a few studded trees grew feebly and a number of thin black pigs rooted energetically. Dirty children in large numbers followed us, demanding alms in boisterous tones, and a few women who, by the aid of canes, were hobbling about on their cramped small feet, stopped to look after us with grins of curiosity and amusement. The open space is the principal entrance. Then we go through a small gate called the Gate of Equity, and later still another called the Dragon Gate, which leads into the Great Avenue. A most strange and curious sight this avenue gives. An open space with a tower on the end known as the Watchtower has a god of literature in the second story. On each side of the open green space are rows of whitewashed buildings, not unlike railway cattle yards in appearance. In these ranges of cells, cells that measure five and a half by three and two-thirds feet, 11,616 pigtailed students undergo their written examination. On the sides facing the avenue are Chinese inscriptions showing what study is examined in that range. In each cell is a board to sit on, and one a little higher for a desk. This roughly improvised desk must be slid out to allow the student to enter or depart unless he crawls under or jumps over. The same texts are given to all at daylight, and very often when essays are not finished at night, the students are kept overnight in their cells. The hall is about 1,380 feet long by 650 feet wide, and is really a strangely interesting place, well worth a visit. It is said the examinations are very severe, and from the large number of candidates examined, sometimes only 150 will be passed. The place in which the essays are examined is called the Hall of Auspicious Stars, and the Chinese inscription over the avenue translated reads, The Opening Heavens Circulate Literature. I had a great curiosity to see the leper village, which is commonly supposed to contain hundreds of Chinese lepers. The village consists of numbers of bamboo huts, and the lepers present a sight appalling in its squalor and filth. Ah Kum told us to smoke cigarettes while in the village so that the frightful odors would be less perceptible. He set the example by lighting one, and we all followed his lead. The lepers were simply ghastly in their misery. There are men, women, and children of all ages and conditions. The few filthy rags which they endeavored to hide their nakedness presented no shape of any garment or any color, so dirty and ragged were they. On the ground floors of the bamboo huts were little else than a few old rags, dried grass, and things of that kind. Furniture there was none. It is useless to attempt a description of the loathsome appearance of the lepers. Many were featureless, some were blind, some had lost fingers, others a foot, some a leg, but all were equally dirty, 
disgusting and miserable. Those able to work cultivate a really prosperous-looking garden, which is near the village. Ah Kham assured me they sold their vegetables in the city market. I felt glad to know we had brought our luncheon from the ship. Those lepers able to walk spend the day in Canton begging, but are always compelled to sleep in their village. Still, I could not help wondering what was the benefit of a leper village if the lepers are allowed to mingle with the other people. On my return to the city, I met several lepers begging in the market. The sight of them among the food was enough to make me vow never to eat anything in Canton. The lepers are also permitted to marry, and a surprising number of diseased children are brought into a cursed and unhappy existence. As we left the leper city, I was conscious of an inward feeling of emptiness. It was Christmas Day, and I thought with regret of dinner at home, although one of the men in the party said it was about midnight in New York. The guide said there was a building nearby which he wanted to show us, and then we would eat our luncheon. Once within a high wall, we came upon a pretty scene. There was a mournful sheet of water undisturbed by a breath of wind. In the background, the branches of low, overhanging trees kissed the still water, just where stood some long-legged storks, made so familiar to us by pictures on Chinese fans. Ah Kham led us to a room which was shut off from the court by a large carved gate. Inside were hardwood chairs and tables. While eating, I heard chanting to the weird, plaintive sound of a tom-tom and a shrill pipe. When I had less appetite and more curiosity, I asked Ah Kham where we were, and he replied, "'In the Temple of the Dead.' and in the temple of the dead I was eating my Christmas luncheon. But that did not interfere with the luncheon. Before we had finished, a number of Chinamen crowded around the gate and looked curiously at me. They held up several children, well-clad, cleanly children, to see me. Thinking to be agreeable, I went forward to shake hands with them, but they kicked and screamed, and getting down, rushed back in great fright, which amused us intensely. Their companions succeeded after a while in quieting them, and they were persuaded to take my hand. The ice once broken, they became so interested in me, my gloves, my bracelets, and my dress, that I soon regretted my friendliness at the outset. It is customary at the death of a person to build a bonfire after night, and cast into the fire household articles, such as money boxes, ladies' dressing cases, etc., composed of gilt paper, the priests, meanwhile, playing upon shrill pipes. They claim the devil, which inhabits all bodies, leaves the body to save the property of the dead, and once they play him out, he can never re-enter. So, souls are saved. I climbed high and dirty stone steps to the water clock, which, they say, is over five hundred years old and has never run down or been repaired. In little niches in the stone walls were small gods, before them the smoldering joss-sticks. The water clock consists of four copper jars, about the size of wooden pails, placed on steps, one above the other. Each one has a spout, from which comes a steady drop-drop. In the last and bottom jar is an indicator, very much like a foot rule, which rises with the water, showing the hour. On a blackboard hanging outside, they mark the time for the benefit of the town people. The upper jar is filled once every twenty-four hours and that is all the attention the clock requires. On our return to the Powan, I found some beautiful presents from Consul Seymour, and the cards of a number of Europeans who had called to see me. 
suffering from a sick headache, I went to my cabin, and shortly we were on our way to Hong Kong, my visit to Canton on Christmas Day being of the past. Chapter 14 To the Land of the Mikado Shortly after my return to Hong Kong, I sailed for Japan on the Oceanic. A number of friends, who had contributed so much towards my pleasure and comfort during my stay in British China, came to the ship to say farewell, and most regretfully did I take leave of them. Captain Smith took us into his cabin, where we all touched glasses and wished one another success, happiness, and all the other good things of this earth. The last moment having come, the final good-bye being said, we parted, and I was started on my way to the land of the Mikado. The Oceanic, on which I traveled from Hong Kong to San Francisco, has quite a history. When it was designed and launched twenty years ago by Mr. Harland of Belfast, it startled the shipping world. The designer was the first to introduce improvements for the comfort of passengers, such as the saloon amidships, avoiding the noise of the engines and especially the racing of the screw in rough weather. Before that time, ships were gloomy and somber in appearance and constructed without a thought of the happiness of passengers. Mr. Harland, in the Oceanic, was the first to provide a promenade deck and to give the saloon and staterooms a light and cheerful appearance. In fact, the Oceanic was such a new departure that it aroused the jealousy of other ship companies and was actually condemned by them as unseaworthy. It is said that so great was the outcry against the ship that sailors and firemen were given extra prices to induce them to make the first trip. Instead of being the predicted failure, the Oceanic proved a great success. She became the Greyhound of the Atlantic, afterwards being transferred to the Pacific in 1875. She is the favorite ship of the O and O line, making her voyages with speed and regularity. She retains a look of positive newness and seems to grow younger with years. In November 1889, she made the fastest trip on record between Yokohama and San Francisco. No expense is spared to make this ship comfortable for the passengers. The catering would be hard to excel by even a first-class hotel. Passengers are accorded every liberty, and the officers do their utmost to make their guests feel at home, so that in the Orient, the Oceanic is the favorite ship, and people wait for months so as to travel on her. When I first went to the ship, the monkey had been transferred from the Oriental. Meeting the stewardess, I asked how the monkey was, to which she replied dryly, We have met. She had her arm bandaged from the wrist to the shoulder. What did you do? I asked in consternation. I did nothing but scream. The monkey did the rest. She replied, I spent New Year's Eve between Hong Kong and Yokohama. The day had been so warm that we wore no wraps. In the forepart of the evening, the passengers sat together in social hall, talking, telling stories, and laughing at them. The captain owned an organette, which he brought into the hall, and he and the doctor took turns at grinding out the music. Later in the evening, we went to the dining hall, where the purser had punch and champagne and oysters for us, a rare treat which he had prepared in America just for this occasion. What children we all became on board a ship! After oysters, we were up to all sorts of childish tricks. As we sat around the table, the doctor gave us each a word to say, such as, Ish, Ash, Ush, 
Then, when we were sure of our word, it coming in rotation around the circle, he told us to shout the words in unison when he gave the signal. We did, and it made one great big sneeze, the most gigantic and absurd sneeze I have ever heard in my life. Afterwards, a jolly man from Yokohama, whose wife was equally jolly and lively-spirited, taught us a song consisting of one line to a melody quite simple and catching. Sweetly sings the donkey when he goes to grass. Sweetly sings the donkey when he goes to grass. Echo, echo, echo. When eight bells rang, we rose and sang Auld Lang Syne with glasses in hand, and on the last echo of the good old song, toasted the death of the old year and the birth of the new. We shook hands around, each wishing the other a happy new year. 1889 was ended, and 1890 with its pleasures and pains began. Shortly after, the women passengers retired. I went to sleep, lulled by the sounds of familiar Negro melodies sung by the men in the smoking room beneath my cabin. Chapter 15 120 Hours in Japan After seeing Hong Kong with its wharfs crowded with dirty boats manned by still dirtier people, And its streets packed with a filthy crowd, Yokohama has a cleaned up Sunday appearance. Travelers are taken from the ships, which anchor some distance out in the bay, to the land in small steam launches. The first class hotels in the different ports have their individual launches, but like American hotel omnibuses, while being run by the hotel to assist in procuring patrons, the traveler pays for them just the same. An import as well as an export duty is charged in Japan, but we pass the custom inspectors unmolested. I found the Japanese jinriksha men a gratifying improvement upon those I had seen from Ceylon to China. They presented no sight of filthy rags, nor naked bodies, nor smell of grease. Clad in neat navy blue garments, their little pudgy legs encased in unwrinkled tights, the upper half of their bodies in short jackets with wide flowing sleeves, Their clean, good natured faces peeping from beneath comical mushroom shaped hats, their blue black wiry locks cropped just above the nape of the neck, they offered a striking contrast to the jinriksha men of other countries. Their crests were embroidered upon the back and sleeves of their top garment, as are the crests of every man, woman, and child in Japan. Raid the night previous had left the streets muddy and the air cool and crisp. But the sun creeping through the mistiness of early morning fell upon us with most gratifying warmth. Wrapping our knees with rugs, the rickshaw men started off in a lively trot to the Pacific Mail and O and O Company's office, where I met discourteous people for the first time since I left the P and O Victoria, and these were Americans too. The most generous excuse that can be offered for them is that they have held their position so long that they feel they are masters. Instead of a steamship company's servants. A man going into the office to buy a ticket to America was answered in the following manner by one of the head men You'll have to come back later if you want a ticket. I'm going to lunch now. I stayed at the Grand Hotel while in Japan. It is a large building with long verandas, wide halls, and airy rooms commanding an exquisite view of the lake in front. Barring an enormous and monotonous collection of rats, the Grand would be considered a good hotel even in America. The food is splendid and the service excellent. The Japs, 
noiseless, swift, anxious to please, stand at the head of all the servants I encountered from New York to New York, and then they look so neat in their blue tights and white linen jackets. I always have an inclination to laugh when I look at the Japanese men in their native dress. Their legs are small, and their trousers are skin tight. The upper garment, with its great wide sleeves, is as loose as the lower is tight. When they finish their get-up by placing their dishpan-shaped hat upon their heads, the wonder grows how such small legs can carry it all. Stick two straws in one end of a potato, a mushroom in the other, set it up on straws, and you have a Japanese in outline. Talk about French heels. The Japanese sandal is a small board elevated on two pieces of thin wood fully five inches in height. They make the people look exactly as if they were on stilts. These queer shoes are fastened to the foot by a single strap running between toes number one and two, the wearer when walking necessarily maintaining a sliding instead of an up-and-down movement in order to keep the shoe on. On a cold day, one would imagine the Japanese were a nation of armless people. They fold their arms up in their long, loose sleeves. A Japanese woman's sleeves are to her what a boy's pockets are to him. Her cards, money, combs, hairpins, ornaments, and rice paper are carried in her sleeves. Her rice paper is her handkerchief, and she notes with horror and disgust that after using we return our handkerchiefs to our pockets. I think the Japanese women carry everything in their sleeves, even their hearts. Not that they are fickle. None are more true, more devoted, more loyal, more constant than Japanese women. But they are so guileless and artless that almost any one, if opportunity offers, can pick at their trusting hearts. If I loved and married, I would say to my mate, Come, I know where Eden is, and like Edwin Arnold, desert the land of my birth for Japan. the land of love, beauty, poetry, cleanliness. I somehow always connected Japan and its people with China and its people, believing the one no improvement on the other. I could not have made a greater mistake. Japan is beautiful. Its women are charmingly sweet. I know little about the men except that they do not go far as we judge manly beauty, being undersized, dark, and far from prepossessing. They have the reputation of being extremely clever, so I do not speak of them as a whole, only of those I came in contact with. I saw one a giant in frame, a god in features, but he was a public wrestler. The Japanese are the direct opposite to the Chinese. The Japanese are the cleanliest people on earth. The Chinese are the filthiest. The Japanese are always happy and cheerful. The Chinese are always grumpy and morose. The Japanese are the most graceful of people, the Chinese the most awkward. The Japanese have few vices. The Chinese have all the vices in the world. In short, the Japanese are the most delightful of people, the Chinese the most disagreeable. The majority of the Europeans live on the bluff in low white bungalows, with great rooms and breezy verandas, built in the hearts of oriental gardens, where one can have an unsurpassed view of the Mississippi Bay, or can play tennis or cricket or loll in hammocks, guarded from public gaze by luxurious green hedges. The Japanese homes form a great contrast to the bungalows. They are daintily small, like playhouses indeed, built of a thin, shingle-like board, fine in texture. Chimneys and fireplaces are unknown. 
The first wall is set back, allowing the upper floor and side walls to extend over the lower flooring, making it a portico built in instead of on the house. Light window frames, with their minute openings covered with fine rice paper instead of glass, are the doors and windows in one. They do not swing open and shut as do our doors, nor do they move up and down like our windows, but slide like rolling doors. They form the partitions of the houses inside and can be removed at any time, throwing the floor into one room. They have two very pretty customs in Japan. The one is decorating their houses in honor of the new year, and the other celebrating the blossoming of the cherry trees. Bamboo saplings covered with light airy foliage and pinioned so as to incline towards the middle of the street where meeting they form an arch make very effective decorations. Rice trimmings mixed with seaweed, orange, lobster, and ferns are hung over every door to ensure a plentiful year, while as sentinels on either side are large tubs in which are three thick bamboo stalks with small evergreen trees for background. In the cool of the evening, we went to a house that had been specially engaged to see the dancing, or geisha, girls. At the door, we saw all the wooden shoes of the household, and we were asked to take off our shoes before entering, a proceeding rather disliked by some of the party, who refused absolutely to do as requested. We effected a compromise, however, by putting cloth slippers over our shoes. The second floor had been converted into one room, with nothing in it except the matting covering the floor and a Japanese screen here and there. We sat upon the floor, for chairs there are none in Japan, but the exquisite matting is padded until it is as soft as velvet. It was laughable to see us trying to sit down, and yet more so to see us endeavor to find a posture of ease for our limbs. We were about as graceful as an elephant dancing. A smiling woman in a black kimono set several round and square charcoal boxes containing burning charcoal before us. These are the only Japanese stove. Afterwards, she brought a tray containing a number of long-stemmed pipes, Japanese women smoke constantly, a pot of tea, and several small cups. Impatiently, I awaited the geisha girls. In the tiny maidens glided at last, clad in exquisite trailing angel-sleeved kimonos, the girls bow gracefully, bending down until their heads touch their knees, then kneeling before us murmur gently a greeting which sounds like coin banwa, drawing their breath in with a long hissing suction, which is a token of great honor. The musicians sat down on the floor and began an alarming dim upon the semisons, drums, and gongs, singing meanwhile through their pretty noses. If the noses were not so pretty, I am sure the music would be unbearable to one who has ever heard a chest note. The geisha girls stand posed, with open fan in hand above their heads, ready to begin the dance. They are very short with the slenderest of slender waists. Their soft and tender eyes are made blacker by painted lashes and brows. Their midnight hair, stiffened with a gummy wash, is most wonderfully dressed in large coils and ornamented with gold and silver flowers and gilt paper pompons. The younger the girl, the more gay is her hair. Their kimonos, of the most exquisite material, trail all about them, and are loosely held together at the waist with an obi sash. Their long flowing sleeves fall back, showing their dimpled arms and baby hands. Upon their tiny feet they wear cunning white linen socks cut with a place for the great toe. When they go out they wear wooden sandals. 
The Japanese are the only women I ever saw who could rouge and powder and be not repulsive, but the more charming because of it. They powder their faces and have a way of reddening their underlip just at the tip that gives them a most tempting look. The lips look like two luxurious cherries. The musicians begin a long chanting strain, and these bits of beauty begin the dance. With a grace simply enchanting, they twirl their little fans, sway their dainty bodies in a hundred different poses, each one more intoxicating than the other, all the while looking so childish and shy, with an innocent smile lurking about their lips, dimpling their soft cheeks, and their black eyes twinkling with the pleasure of the dance. After the dance, the geisha girls made friends with me, examining with surprised delight my dress, my bracelets, my rings, my boots, to them the most wonderful and extraordinary things, my hair, my gloves, indeed they missed very little, and they approved of all. They said I was very sweet, and urged me to come again, and in honor of the custom of my land, the Japanese never kiss, they pressed their soft pouting lips to mine in parting. Japanese women know nothing whatever of bonnets, and may they never. On rainy days they tie white scarves over their wonderful hair-dressing, but at other times they waddle bareheaded, with fan and umbrella, along the streets on their wooden clogs. They have absolutely no furniture. Their bed is a piece of matting, their pillows narrow blocks of wood, probably six inches in length, two wide and six high. They rest the back of the neck on the velvet-covered top, so their wonderful hair remains dressed for weeks at a time. Their tea and pipe always stand beside them, so they can partake of their comforts the last thing before sleep and the first thing after. A Japanese reporter from Tokyo came to interview me, his newspaper having translated and published the story of my visit to Jules Verne. Carefully he read the questions which he wished to ask me. They were written at intervals on long rolls of foolscap, the space to be filled in as I answered. I thought it ridiculous until I returned and became an interviewee. Then I concluded it would be humane for us to adopt the Japanese system of interviewing. I went to Kamakura to see the great bronze god, the image of Buddha, familiarly called Dayabutsu. It stands in a verdant valley at the foot of two mountains. It was built in 1250 by Onogoro Yemen, a famous bronze caster, and is 50 feet in height. It is sitting Japanese style, 98 feet being its waist circumference. The face is 8 feet long, the eye is 4 feet, the ear 6 feet 6 and 1 half inches, the nose 3 feet 8 and 1 half inches, the mouth is 3 feet 2 and 1 half inches, the diameter of the lap is 36 feet and the circumference of the thumb is over three feet. I had my photograph taken sitting on its thumb with two friends, one of whom offered fifty thousand dollars for the god. Years ago, at the Feast of the God, sacrifices were made to Daibutsu. Quite frequently the hollow interior would be heated to a white heat, and hundreds of victims were cast into the seething furnace in honor of the god. It is different now, sacrifices being not the custom, and the hollow interior is harmlessly fitted up with tiny altars and a ladder stairway by which visitors can climb up into Dayabutsu's eye and from that height view the surrounding lovely country. We also visited a very pretty temple nearby, saw a famous fan tree and lotus pond, and spent some time at the most delightful tea house where two little Jap girls served us with tea and sweets. 
I also spent one day at Tokyo, where I saw the Mikado's Japanese and European castles, which are enclosed by a fifty-foot stone wall and three wide moats. The people in Tokyo are trying to ape the style of the Europeans. I saw several men in native costume riding bicycles. Their roads are superb. There is a streetcar line in Tokyo, a novelty in the East, and carriages of all descriptions. The European clothing sent to Japan is at least ready-made, if not second-hand. One woman I saw was considered very stylish. The bodice of a European dress she wore had been cut to fit a slender, tapering waist. The Japanese never saw a corset, and their waists are enormous. The woman was able to fasten one button at the neck, and from that point the bodice was permitted to spread. She was considered very swell. At dinner one night I saw a Jap woman in a low-cut evening dress with nothing but white socks on her feet. It would fill a large book if I attempted to describe all I saw during my stay in Japan. Going to the great Sheba temple, I saw a forest of superb trees. At the carved gate leading to the temple were hundreds of stone and bronze lanterns, which alone were worth a fortune. On one side of the gate were gigantic carved images of ferocious aspect. They were covered with wads of chewed paper. When I remarked that the school children must have made very free with the images, a gentleman explained that the Japanese believed if they chewed paper and threw it at these gods and it stuck, their prayers would be answered. If not, their prayers would pass unheeded. A great many prayers must have been answered. At another gate I saw the most disreputable-looking god. It had no nose. The Japanese believe if they have a pain or ache, and they rub their hands over the face of that god, and then where the pain is located, they will straightway be cured. I can't say whether it cured them or not, but I know they rubbed away the nose of the god. The Japanese are very progressive people. They cling to their religion and their modes of life, which in many ways are superior to ours. but they readily adopt any trade or habit that is an improvement upon their own. Finding the European male attire more serviceable than their native dress for some trades, they promptly adopted it. The women tested the European dress, and finding it barbarously uncomfortable and inartistic, went back to their exquisite kimonos, retaining the use of European underwear, which they found more healthful and comfortable than the utter absence of it to which they had been accustomed. The best proof of the comfort of kimonos lies in the fact that the European residents have adopted them entirely for indoor wear. Only their long subjection to fashion prevents their wearing them in public. Japanese patriotism should serve as a model for us careless Americans. No foreigner can go to Japan and monopolize a trade. It is true that a little while ago they were totally ignorant of modern conveniences. They knew nothing of railroads, or streetcars, or engines, or electric lighting. They were too clever, though, to waste their wits in efforts to rediscover inventions known to other nations, but they had to have them. Straight away they sent to other countries for men who understood the secret of such things, and at fabulous prices and under contracts of three, five, and occasionally ten years' duration, brought them to their land. They were set to work. the work they had been hired to do, and with them toiled steadily and watchfully the cleverest of Japanese. When the contract is up, it is no longer necessary to fill the coffers of a foreigner. The employee was released, and their own man, fully qualified for the work, stepped into the position. And so in this way they command all business in their country. 
Kimonos are made in three parts, each part an inch or so longer than the other. I saw a kimono a Japanese woman bought for the holidays. It was a suit, gray silk crepe, with pink peach blossoms dotting it here and there. The whole was lined with the softest pink silk, and the hem, which trails, was thickly padded with a delicate perfume sachet. The underclothing was of the flimsiest white silk. The whole thing cost sixty dollars, a dollar and a half of which paid for the making. Japanese clothing is sewed with what we call a basting stitch, but it is as durable as it could be if sewed with the smallest of stitches. Japanese women have mirrors in which they view their numerous charms. Their mirrors are round, highly polished steel plates, and they know nothing whatever of glass mirrors. All the women carry silk card cases in their long sleeves, in which are their own diminutive cards. English is taught in the Japan schools, and so is gracefulness. The girls are taught graceful movements, how to receive, entertain, and part with visitors, how to serve tea and sweets gracefully, and the proper and graceful way to use chopsticks. It is a pretty sight to see a lovely woman use chopsticks. At a tea house or at an ordinary dinner, a long paper laid at one's place contains a pair of chopsticks, probably twelve inches in length, but no thicker than the thinner size of lead pencils. The sticks are usually whittled in one piece and split only half apart to prove that they have never been used. Everyone breaks the sticks apart before eating, and after the meal they are destroyed. An American resident of Japan told me of his going to see a cremation. The Japanese graveyard is a strange affair, with the headstones set close together, leaving the space for the graves less than the size of a baby's grave in America. As soon as the breath has left a body, it is undressed and doubled up head to feet, and is made to go in a very small bamboo box built in imitation of a Japanese house. This house may cost a great deal of money. It is carried along the streets on two poles to the place where it is to be cremated, where it is given in charge of the cremator, and the friends go back to their homes until the following day when they return for the ashes, which are generally placed in an urn and buried. The American, of whom I spoke, made arrangements with the cremator, and accompanied by a friend, walked to the place in the country and waited out of sight until the mourners had vanished before they dared to draw near enough to see the cremation. They had walked quite a distance dinnerless, and said naively that the odor was like that of veal, and it made him ravenously hungry. A small hole about three feet long is made in the earth, and in it the fire is built. When it was the proper heat, the box was set over it, and in an instant it was consumed. The body released from its doubled position straightened out, the lower half being over the fire was soon cremated, excepting the feet and knee joints. The man in charge carefully pulled the upper part of the body over the fire, and with the same large fork put the half-consumed feet and knee joints under the arms. In less than an hour all that remained of the body was a few ashes in the bottom of the pit. While the cremator was explaining it all to the gentleman, he repeatedly filled his little pipe and lit it with the fire from the burning body. At his urgent request the gentleman consented to take tea with him when his task was done. They entered his neat little home, where he jumped into a boiling bath in the open garden, from which he emerged later as red as a lobster. Meanwhile his charming and pretty daughters were dispensing the hospitalities of their home to their guests, and the father, desirous of enjoying their society, came in and stood in the doorway, talking to them and watching them eat while he wiped his naked body with a towel. 
The prettiest sight in Japan, I think, is the native streets in the afternoons. Men, women, and children turn out to play shuttlecock and fly kites. Can you imagine what an enchanting sight it is to see pretty women with cherry lips, bright black eyes, ornamented glistening hair, exquisitely graceful gowns, tidy white stocking feet thrust into wooden sandals, dimpled cheeks, dimpled arms, dimpled baby hands, lovely, innocent, artless, happy, playing shuttlecock in the streets of Yokohama? Japanese children are unlike any other children I ever saw at play. They always look happy and never seem to quarrel or cry. Little Japanese girls, elevated on wooden sandals and with babies almost as large as themselves tied on their backs, play shuttlecock with abandon that is terrifying until one grows confident of the fact that they move with as much agility as they could if their little backs were free from nursemaid burdens. Japanese babies are such comical little fellows. They wear such wonderfully padded clothing that they are as shapeless as a feather pillow. Others may think, as I did, that the funny little shaven spots on their heads was a queer style of ornamentation, but it is not. I am assured the spots are shaven to keep their baby heads cool. The Japanese are not only pretty and artistic, but most obliging. A friend of mine who guided us in Japan had a Kodak, and whenever we came upon an interesting group, he was always taking snapshots. No one objected, and especially were the children pleasant about being photographed. When he placed them in position, or asked them to stand as they were, they would pose like little drum majors until he gave them permission to move. The only regret of my trip, and one I can never cease to deplore, was that in my hasty departure I forgot to take a Kodak. On every ship and at every port I met others and envied them with Kodaks. They could photograph everything that pleased them. The light in those lands is excellent, and many were the pleasant mementos of their acquaintances and themselves they carried home on their plates. I met a German who was spending two years going around the world, and he carried two Kodaks, a large and a small size, and his collection of photographs was the most interesting I ever saw at the different ports he had professional photographers develop his plates. The Japanese thoughtfully reserve a trade for their blind. They are all taught massage bathing, and none but the blind are allowed to follow this calling. These people go through the streets uttering to a plaintive melody these words, I'll give you a bath from head to toe for two cents. At Ueno Park, where they point out a tree planted by General Grant when on his tour around the world, I saw a most amusing monkey which belonged to the very interesting menagerie. It was very large and had a scarlet face and gray fur. It was chained to the fence, and when one of the young men in our party went up and talked to him, the monkey looked very sagacious and wise. In the little crowd that gathered around, quite out of the monkey's reach, was a young Jap who, in a spirit of mischief, tossed a pebble at the red-faced mystery, who turned with a grieved and inquiring air to my friend. "'Go for him!' My friend responded sympathetically to the look, and the monkey turned and with its utmost strength endeavored to free itself so it could obey to do the bidding. The Jap made his escape, and the monkey quieted down, looking expressively at the place where the Jap had stood, and then at my friend for approval, which he obtained. The keeper gave the monkey its dinner, which consisted of two large boiled sweet potatoes. My friend broke one and two, and the monkey greedily ate the inside, placing the remainder with the other potato on the fence between his feet. Suddenly he looked up, and quick as a flash he flung with his entire force, which was something terrific, the remaining potato at the head of someone in the crowd. 
There was some loud screaming and a scattering, but the potato missing all heads went crashing with such force against a board fence that every particle of it remained sticking there in one shapeless splotch. The chap who had tossed the pebble at the monkey and so earned his enmity quietly shrunk away with the whitened face. He had returned unnoticed by all except the monkey, who tried to revenge himself with the potato. I admired the monkey's cleverness so much that I would have tried to buy him if I had not already owned one. In Yokohama, I went to Hundred Steps, at the top of which lives a Japanese bell, Oyushisan, who is the theme for artist and poet and the admiration of tourists. One of the pleasant events of my stay was the luncheon given for me on the Omaha, the American war vessel lying at Yokohama. I took several drives, enjoying the novelty of having a Japanese running by the horses' heads all the while. I ate rice and eel. I visited the curio shops, one of which is built in imitation of a Japanese house, and was charmed with the exquisite art I saw there. In short, I found nothing but what delighted the finer senses while in Japan. <laughs>